0: Greg Butcher joins me here tonight with Blue Sky Equity Partners, and Greg has an opportunity for everybody. So head over to bit.ly slash KPI checklist as we talk about some of those KPIs and reports that you should be visiting on a regular basis when you're dealing with multifamily investing. And we're going to be talking about multifamily asset management and what that entails. So, Greg, I really appreciate your time here today.
1: Thank you very much, Jack.
0: Appreciate being on the show today. So Greg, we chatted a little bit about this regarding our topic here tonight, but before we do, I always like to talk a little bit about your background, how you got into multifamily investing, because you were an active duty Marine when you jumped into real estate investing. That's correct.
1: That's correct. So I started off like a lot of investors investing in single-family homes because that's all I knew about real estate whatsoever. And it was maybe about nine years ago when I first learned about multifamily real estate and also about the power of syndications investing through those, which of course is just nothing more than a great purchase. So I ended up joining one of the multifamily mentoring and educational programs right as I was retiring off of active duty. And invested passively as a limited partner myself for the first year while I was learning how to underwrite and all that. And then my second year in that program in 2016, I got my first deal as a general partner.
0: Based on the lessons you learned as being a Marine, and and thank you for your service, by the way, but is there any lessons that you've been able to take from being a Marine and bring it to your real estate investing?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd say the number one thing is attention to detail attention to detail on everything you do. And that's, that has absolutely carried over into the way I conduct business right now. Another thing is just listening and and caring about what's going on, both with your partners, with your tenants, with everyone. Everyone has a story and it's all, they're all important. So you have to pay attention and and, and figure out who has honest problems that you might be able to help them through and who might be trying to get by and scam you sometimes now.
0: So with that transition from being an active Marine to being a full-time investor, do you have any tips or strategies to some of those fellow veterans that might be listening to, like how was that transition and where would you suggest, now that you have this experience, where would you have them start?
1: For me, I still needed a job for a while after I retired off of active duty, but it was all I had a job that was completely telework and that allowed me to balance everything out appropriately. I think I might've had a hard time if I was going into an office and someone was looking over my shoulder all the time, and being able to get everything done appropriately. I think part of it is just paying attention to the work opportunities and, and the environment that you have to work in. And part of it is just getting started, jumping in the deep end of the pool, finding out as much as you can, being around other real estate investors, the saying that, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with is absolutely true. So don't delay, start now.
0: Would you suggest people just jump right into multifamily investing or would you start again at the single family level?
1: I think that most people tend to start off at the single family level because it's more understandable at first, but there's nothing saying you have to do that. My very first multifamily deal, I went from my previous purchase being a single family home, my first multifamily deal as a general partner being 120 units. So I think that the, the advice that you need to start real small of like four plexes or something and move up to a six or eight plex first and then slowly work up, I I wouldn't necessarily agree with that.
0: So that kind of leads us to what we're talking about here today regarding multifamily asset management. And you put together these downloads for people. So if they go to the bit.ly slash KPI checklist, based on your experience, is that one of the reasons you generated these reports so that people go into the right habit of reviewing these KPIs?
1: Yes, exactly, Jack. Really, I was looking as I was finding out about multi multifamily asset management to for something like this. The education programs, for the most part, only teach acquisition. They don't teach what to do with it, with a property once you get it? because everyone wants to be able to say that they close properties, whether they're buying or mm-hmm. selling. The closing properties, acquisitions, dispositions, that, that's the sexy side of the business. Being able to raise capital, that's the sexy side of the business. Asset management is just not all that sexy, but it is oh so important, especially in today's economy where we have declining prices, good asset management and the debt that you put on a property, I uh, can make the difference between whether a property succeeds or or fails right now. So I was looking as I was coming up and learning as much as I could about asset management for some kind of a checklist that broke down what I needed to be looking at on a weekly, monthly, quarterly, annual basis. I never found one. I found a whole list of KPIs, but not anything that broke it down by chronologically like that. So I ended up just building it myself after I had enough experience to do
0: so can we re- visit a few of those things? And this is partly not only managing the asset but actually managing that property manager as well. Let's start with the asset. What are some of those things that you found that are commonly missed that you felt you had to represent in these downloads? Certainly, um I'd say that
1: some of them are the KPIs regarding leasing and marketing activities for example. What marketing channels are you and your property management team executing and paying for right now? What's the monthly spend on that? How many leads and what's your total lead flow coming in? And what lead sources, the marketing channels, uh, can you attribute those to? And then breaking that down all the way down to cost per lead, cost per lease signed. Looking at the, uh, the ratio between the ratios between. The amount of leads coming in, the the showings that you have, the lease applications that, that those generate, and then the actual number of leases signed. If you manage those ratios, there's different different elements there that's of effectiveness. If it's, if your leases to appointments ratio is low, then that might mean a matter of your property management company isn't responding to, to inbound questions and leads quick enough. Because if they don't respond quickly, they usually just go on to the next place. People are applying online these days and they might put out to five or ten different places at the same time an application. So they're typically gonna respond and pay attention to the first two or three responses that they see. If the if your ratio between the um the showings and the applications is low, then maybe there's an issue with your product or your price or the sales people you have there giving the tour and, and following up. So those are a couple of examples there.
0: Based on that information, I'm, I would guess, is it kind of market-specific or do you have like industry averages for some of those KPIs?
1: I'm sure there are industry averages. I haven't found those yet. I'd say that market-specific, yeah, there are those two, but it also depends on uh, what's going on in the market at the time. For example, in a couple of the markets I'm in, um, Phoenix and Tucson, Arizona, uh, the market two years ago or even a year ago is much different than the market that we're in right now. So it, demand has softened up a little bit. We're having to offer a little bit more in concessions than we did. We haven't, but some places have have dropped prices just a little bit to remain more competitive. What you do in that, that kind of market is very different than what you do in a market uh, a year and a half, two years ago where we had double-digit rent growth.
0: I'd be curious as to your insight then regarding property managers, as you're probably hiring somebody in your local market regarding that, have you found, for the most part, what I've found is that more times than not, unfortunately, our interests aren't aligned when it comes to that. Do you find that reviewing these KPIs and having those upfront conversations on a regular basis kind of keeps everybody in check or... I believe so. Yes. Just showing that
1: you're being diligent and you have a process for doing things helps keep people honest about things. And developing a relationship with your site manager and your regional property manager, who's the site manager's boss, just, it goes a long way. You have to build a relationship with them. You have to respect their, everyone's time and, and not drag on meetings forever. Have a set agendas, driven meetings. Because the regional typically has seven, eight, maybe even nine properties that he or she is is supervising over the site managers. So they're doing this, this same meeting seven, eight, nine times a week. Yeah. And it's, it, it this definitely helps keep everyone on the same sheet of music. Everyone can get busy. So if you don't focus on those KPIs and review them occasionally or, or really on a, not just occasionally, but on a routine basis then people can easily slip past things that should have caught their attention beforehand
0: when you before you have a property manager join your team whether you're hiring a company or you're hiring internally are there some questions that you found that are best to be asked up front or to set that level of that agenda in order to make sure it's a proper fit Yes, absolutely. So
1: you want to understand first off the size of the property management company, how many apartment assets and units do they have under management? How many properties does each regional have? Uh, uh, do they supervise? Okay. How much overhead support is available? My my first property that I was a uh, general partner on that 120 unit, when I mentioned before, they were a very small boutique Property management company had somewhere around 1,500 units, maybe under under management, which in a way was great because we got like individual tailored support. We got to, it was like Burger King, we got to have it our way. Whereas some of the larger property management companies don't let you do that. That said, there were limitations in the amount of overhead support that the, the corporate office was able to provide to the regional and to the site manager. And we ran into a few of those issues. I'd say that the property management companies I'm using right now are more mid-sized property management companies that will uh, entertain our specific requests and everything, uh, but they provide enough support to the regional also. Things like having loading maintenance staff that can surge to properties if you have some extra make readies to be to, to do one month or some extra uh, maintenance tasks to be uh, done on site. Uh, vice hiring temporary employees or or contracting out. Those two options are typically more expensive than just being able to or loading maintenance staff from the property management company. The depth of their accounting department has made a difference before, especially when we borrow uh, a big chunk of our uh, renovation budget as part of our loan. Then we have to pay for, do work up front, pay for it, and then submit for a draw from the lender on the escrow. And if the accounting department is deep enough and, that, and has experience in doing those, man, that makes all the difference in the world. That first property I used that boutique firm for, they didn't have any overhead support for that. And it was just the, the, the site manager and she just didn't have that kind of training. So I ended up having to actually drive out to Phoenix in, from San Diego, about six hour drive to sit down with her for a few hours and help her through the whole process so we could get where we need. To be. So hmm. a couple of examples there.
0: Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about some examples because it typically what I've found is that when somebody is focused like you are on the KPIs and the like, there is typically some sort of pain that, that likely caused you to go down this road outside of what you just shared. There was there anything else that happened that, that caused you to provide this level of focus? Sure. So some of my lessons have been learned the hard way and then others
1: have just been learning from others who learn the hard way or just generally trying to learn I try to learn as much as I can about this business all the time and I recognize early on the importance of asset management even when people weren't talking about it as much and back then we didn't have to as much because the compressing cap rates rising prices can gloss over input practices right now we can't so stories a story about insurance and in about almost two years ago I was out there taking a tour and of some of our vacant units that were under renovation at the time. We had, we'd brought on a new company to do our renovations. And I was looking, wanted to look over the quality of the work. And there was a unit I walked into that. I was just like, what's going on here? There's not a right angle in this entire kitchen. I don't understand. And uh, the regional who was with me caught it sooner than I did. There is an issue with the, literally the level of the floor and after some investigation, we figured out that a eucalyptus tree root had gone underneath the the slab looking for water and had literally raised the slab up three inches off level. So, yeah, so that was not a an insurance claim, uh, claimable event, because it was not a sudden occurrence, something that prompted that. It was something that occurred naturally over time. So insurance won't get, won't touch that with a 10-foot pole. So... Everything was up to us, and our had to have a, a deep enough reserves to be able to handle that. Uh, we ended up having to remove all of the uh, the key and uh, everything, the appliances, everything in the kitchen, remove the flooring, uh, the kitchen and the, the dining room, uh, and jackhammer up the foundation to cut out that tree root and then pour a new foundation and build it back up from there. So the whole thing cost us about $35,000 for this unit. And that was on top of having just finished the renovation right before that. Mm-hmm. Add next year, like seven or eight thousand dollars on top of that, and that was an expensive lesson to learn. And if you didn't have enough deep enough reserves, then that could have hurt someone. We had deep enough reserves to be able to to absorb that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So was that like an apartment building, or was that a single family home that you had to deal with?
1: No, that was a in a one hundred and ten unit apartment building. Wow.
0: Although thirty five thousand sounds like a relatively large number. It could have been a lot worse.
1: It could have been. It could have been. And then about six weeks later, we actually did have an insurance claim when the a storm that came through the monsoon blew like 25% of our fences over and dropped a tree branch on top of one of the carports. Again, with reserves, you have to think through some of the things that could happen. And you have to always take your insurance deductible into an account. We, uh, our insurance deductibles was $5,000, so not a big deal, but we still had to do some of that work up front and pay for it and get reimbursed by the insurance claim. So
0: so you jumped into becoming a syndicator yourself at that, at a certain point, what was some of the biggest lessons you learned in tackling that new endeavor?
1: Let's say a lot of these are some of those lessons as far as the, on the asset management side. And then besides that, just I'd say uh, some of the simple things are with your projections, being realistic, being conservative. You always want to underpromise and over-deliver uh, with your investors because at the end of the day, who do we serve? We, we serve our investors. We also serve our tenants. And it's important for people to remember
0: that. Um, mm-hmm. So
1: the, those are a couple of those lessons. Let's see. Those are the ones that popped in mind off the top of my head right now.
0: Sure. What was your biggest hurdle when you started your first syndication?
1: The biggest hurdle was finding the right teammates to the right partners to get started. Uh, I was in a mentoring program that was based out of Dallas. and We had meetings every few months in Dallas. And here I was living in San Diego, living the good life as a retired Marine officer. But guess what? I'm not going to invest in California, which I'm just not going to Phoenix was about the closest uh market that made any sense for me to focus on. And I was starting to look at properties there. And finally, I met the right people in that uh, mentoring network who had also just closed their very first deal as general partners. And it was actually in Norman, Oklahoma, which coincidentally is where I went to college. the uh, University of Oklahoma. And they had deal flow coming to them in, in Phoenix. And the Phoenix market was just starting to really eat up. And so they were looking for a way to go after those deals but they didn't have any ability to get out there to look at properties because they still had day jobs in the IT industry. So my job that I had after I left active duty, like I mentioned, it was remote work. And as long as I got my projects done on time, no one knew or cared or asked where I was in any given day or any given moment of the hour of the day. So it was pretty easy for me to hop in the car and make the run out to Phoenix to look to to tour properties and meet with brokers. So we formed a natural synergy there, and that's how I got into my first
0: deal. You met these uh, people that eventually became your partners. What were the key indicators that would be a good fit?
1: At the time, it was more about the opportunity, but in hindsight, there were actually some personality things where it wasn't a good fit, and it made things a little bit uh, challenging at times. So I learned a lot about what to look for in potential partners and Mm -hmm. making sure sure that you things the right way, that you have the same values and that your personalities are a mesh because ultimately you get into one of these deals for three, four, five years or possibly more. And it's like a marriage. It is like a marriage and you need to be able to, at the end of the day, get along with these people long for to throughout the life of the property.
0: One of the things that I've said over and over on this show actually is that you either start a partnership with an awkward conversation or you end with one. Did you find that to be the case in this situation?
1: No, but it could have been. I think it should. If we had started with the opera conversation, then perhaps we would have never gotten into the deal, which itself would have been a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know when I would have gotten into the next deal. And that first one is the hardest one. But I do absolutely agree with you. I think the last one just, or, I'm sorry, it I think the it ended just with some ill feelings. Without actually having the awkward conversation, but I can totally relate to what you're saying.
0: So now that you've been doing this for a while, how many, do you mind me asking, how many doors, how many properties have you syndicated at this point?
1: Uh, Yeah, sure. I've syndicated eight different properties now. That first one went full cycle back in 2019. Still have seven of them under management right now, which is about a little over a thousand doors and roughly 160, 170 million assets under management right now.
0: And how has that been working out? Your return to those investors have been pretty decent.
1: On all the fixed rate deals, they've been fixed rate loan deals, they've been fantastic. We've beaten our projections on every single one. The ones we got into with floating rate debt, now that the interest rates are rising, those have been absolutely challenged as you would expect. So that's again where good asset management comes into play. There are some of those properties where with floating rate debt where we have had to stop distributions. Not all of them. there are some that are still paying distributions. So it's important for investors to understand why distributions might need to stop so we can preserve cash and make sure that we're actually preserving everyone's original investment. I think we're going we're going to get through this. we're going to get get there on all these properties. i'm I'm very confident it's just some extra pain for us as the general partners and and a little bit of extra stress and and work that goes into making these work.
0: but All the ones with fixed rate
1: debt are absolutely killing it right now.
0: So besides the rising interest rates, is there anything else that has happened during this economy that surprised you?
1: Nothing yet. Like I mentioned before, how demand has softened in in Arizona at least, but I wasn't really surprised by that, especially after last year and a half ago when demand and I'm sorry, when rent uh, growth in Phoenix was like 27% year over year. It's not surprising if then if things slack off for a year or two after that. Other than that, I'd say COVID was a surprise. Obviously, I think COVID was a surprise to everybody. We immediately went defensive. We announced that we were going to have to stop distributions, and, but we only ended up having to stop it for one deal. I'm sorry, for one quarter. And we did a lot of stress testing to find out, figure out how far could our collections drop before we were really in trouble and before we were in burning through a reserve, but we never got to that point. We worried a lot about it, but then when we actually saw after the first month or two what was happening, we are like, okay, this isn't going to be a problem at all. Um, We had stopped our renovations uh, midstream too, but we ended up restarting them after only two months, and we were even able to start achieving rent bumps again after a few months. That was a bit of a surprise for us.
0: Sure. You mentioned stress testing. I think a lot of people, especially when they get into real estate investing, it's all rosy. They always only look at the bright side of things, of what the potential could be. Is that something you typically would advise people to take a moment and and look at the other side of that coin?
1: Yes, absolutely. Things aren't mm-hmm. always rosy. Things happen, and generally up front. We can, we try to advise prospective investors on what those things could be, but it's the, those potentially unforeseeable things that can really bite us. So no one expects the global pan- pandemic to happen like that. was pretty unforeseen for everybody, but everyone should absolutely think, consider the risks that are inherent in every single deal because there are risks in them.
0: Yeah, it it is actually surprising during that time we had some properties and it it's amazing how your residents will make different decisions than you hope they would during that time there was the moratorium regarding evictions especially longer in one of in in the state i was in way longer than we would have liked to see and then you'd go to the to the the apartment building and see brand new tvs boxes in the dumpster knowing that those same residents aren't paying rent at the moment
1: this is true. This is true. I, I don't think we ever dealt with that because we only had the one asset at the time and it was a class B. And it used to be a 55 and up, and up community. It w- wasn't at this point, but I was pleasantly surprised by how little of that we had going on. Um, contrast that with a property that we bought at the tail end of COVID in late 2021, where the seller was paying some tenants to get out because of the eviction moratorium was just getting ready to end. And they hadn't paid rent in eight or nine months, and and were driving BMWs instead. I think that part of that depends on the property class and the tenant class in the property.
0: Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Just to remind everybody, check the show description or the show notes, and I'm going to make sure to have that as a clickable link in the show notes. The bit.ly slash KPI checklist. Take advantage of what Greg is offering there, and frankly, take a look and see what. Greg and his team are up to, but Greg, this has been a really interesting conversation, but before I let you go, I hope uh, to throw some rapid fire questions at you. Absolutely, Jack. So here's your chance to bust a real estate investing myth. What do you like to bust here tonight? Oh, I'd say I already mentioned it
1: earlier, and that's that you don't have to start with in multifamily with four plexes and small, very small properties and slowly build your way up. You shouldn't jump into a 500-unit property either, but um, it's absolutely reasonable to start off with something that is large enough to use third-party management on, which is typically around 60, 70 doors, if you have the right team. That's critical, is having the right team.
0: Sure. Do you have a book recommendation or what are you reading right now?
1: Certainly. One book recommendation, since I was talking about asset management a lot of this this time, is a book called Best in Class. And that is by my friends, Gary Lipsky and Kyle Mitchell. And that is a really great book, specifically about multifamily
0: asset management. Do you have a tool that you use on a regular basis in your business or personal life you just can't live without?
1: It seems simple, but the biggest one is probably just Excel. Just Slack quite a bit too, but even more than that, the, the one I couldn't, could never get around without is Excel for looking at our, our financials and, and our performance and everything else. So
0: Sure. If you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be?
1: Start now. Don't put it off.
0: Absolutely don't put it off. That's probably the number one answer I get on that when I ask that one. (laughs) So you have 60 seconds to give everybody a piece of advice they can implement in their business right now. What would it be?
1: It would be to, if if you're dealing with single family homes, then I would say consider getting into a syndication in commercial real estate. And that you don't have to jump ship completely and uh, exclusively, but put some of that work that you're making in single family homes to, to work for you in a syndication, where it's a true passive investment and it's earning different returns. I think that's probably, if people who are primarily doing single family home investing right now, that's, I think that's the, the best advice I would give. And it doesn't have to be multifamily, but it certainly can. Another asset class I'm looking at getting into in the near future is self-storage. And that typically has, right now, that has higher uh, cash flow that we're able to find in multifamily.
0: Yeah. Historically too, as you're dealing with a downturn in in the economy, storage is typically a a strong bet.
1: Exactly. I think multifamily and storage are basically the two most recession resistant asset classes Mm -hmm. out there.
0: Greg, this was again, such a great conversation. Before I let you go, is there a question or concept you wished we would have covered here today? Oh, gosh. It would take too
1: long to explain, but if people who download my my KPI report checklist will have a glimpse at what I call my my B3C3 asset management principles, which basically stand, uh, stands for the manager, your, your manager is your most important partner, meetings, the quick version is have effective meetings, measure, use KPIs to measure your what's going on with your property, cash and financial management know how to read the financials, understand accounting, and, and properly plan out reserves and things like that, like I was talking about during the show. Construction management pays to have someone on your team who is versed in construction management, and you have to pay attention to what's going on with your renovations, how long those take, all that, that kind of thing. And then community. Fostering a sense of community is a profitable part of the, of the business, and the tenants deserve it because it's
0: their homes. Greg, this was great. Again, it was bit.ly slash KPI checklist. It will be a clickable link in the show notes, but Greg, I appreciate your time. This is great. I, I hope you'll come back again sometime.
1: Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Jack. This was a lot all fun.